How's it going? I'm Xander Fryer, just another millennial corporate dropout turned entrepreneur. Since quitting my day job as an engineer just over four years ago, I built a multi-million dollar coaching business, mentoring seven-figure business owners, professional athletes, award-winning musicians, Hollywood actors, best-selling authors, and hundreds of aspiring entrepreneurs. I truly believe that when we couple the right knowledge with a strong desire for action, anything is possible. But most of us are never given the right knowledge, the shit you don't learn in college. The Sidlik Podcast shares interviews from the world's most successful people in business, finance, sports, health, and entertainment in order to help you live a life filled with more money, more meaning, and more freedom than you ever thought possible. Get ready to learn the shit you don't learn in college. All right, all right. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Shit You Don't Learn in College. I'm your host, Xander Fryer, and today I'm going to be talking with my good friend, Rebecca Babcock. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm, There's a I'm lot ex- of shit I didn't learn in college. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. I think we're going to have plenty to talk about. Uh, now, for for obviously, you know, we're going to dig into your story and a lot of what you've overcome uh, and now you're an amazing coach, an amazing career coach, changing thousands of lives. And you're gonna you're gonna obviously shift a lot of the way the industry is done. But getting to where you are now and doing what you are now and everything there is only part of it. I, I really want to start with your story. Um, but if maybe you could start off with just letting everybody know what you do now as a coach, and then we'll go back in time and start walking through your story. Does that work? That's perfect. All right. So again, my name's Rebecca Babcock. My company's called. Rebecca Babcock Coaching. Um, I help professionals who have it all on paper, but still feel unfulfilled in their career and meh about their life to really discover their passion and their purpose in a way that they can actually still make money. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Because it's not just about having passion and purpose. It is about making money. Yeah, let's be real. Let's Let's be real. Let's be real. Let's be honest. So, so how did you get to this point? Because you've gone through a, a whirlwind of a journey over, over, you know, the, the years. So let's just go start, you know, maybe in your career. How did, how did this all yeah. start up? Yeah. I'm going to take a step back before that, just to sure. give it a little bit more context. But so I'm a, I'm a day or two older than you, Xander. So I've, I've had a little bit more time, so we don't need to keep everyone on this for three hours, but basically the long and the short of it is that I actually was diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune disease when I was 16. So, um, and it's called ulcerative colitis. My body thinks that my intestines are a foreign object and it's constantly attacking them. So I kind of had an interesting extra curriculum that wasn't being taught at my lovely all girls preparatory school or at my college, which was how to not be a victim. Yeah. So I learned very early on that this diagnosis that has no known cause and no known cure at 16 years old was going to be the thing that sort of buried me or I was going to have to figure out how to manage it. What's what's amazing to me there, right, is there are a lot of people, especially when they get ulcerative colitis, is they go into the victimhood mindset. And, right? and above and beyond just that is the fact that not only is it an autoimmune disease, not only is it chronic and the medications and the side effects, the symptoms themselves aren't exactly things that 16-year-olds want to be talking about with their friends. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. not it's not arthritis. You know, it's yeah. it's GI-related stuff. So I basically decided, and I can't tell you if it was me or if it was my family, but we just didn't really make a thing about it. So what yeah. began very early on was sort of this, this warrior mode. Yeah. And um, 
I also had to balance very early on sort of things I want to do and having fun and, and responsibility younger than a lot of other people have it. Yeah. So that's sort of the beginning of my journey. And I, um, big, big time high achiever, like we all are, uh, went to Vanderbilt, graduated magna cum laude with a degree in human and organizational development. And then this will show my age. I graduated. I, so I grew up right outside of New York City. I graduated and I moved to New York City and 9-11 happened. Yeah. About three months after I graduated. Wow. So um, that sort of warrior mode began. I went on 47 interviews before I got my first job. Wow. So, um, yeah. And I, you know, I'd graduated from a top university with high honors. And it was like, watch out, here I come. And the world was like, And the world yeah, was like, yeah, go sit back down. We're good. Sit down, yeah. sweetie. And that was great for me. And that helped me to really hone my interview skills, if nothing else, and have a better idea of what I really wanted to be doing. So my first job out of college was at Harper's Bazaar magazine, and I was the marketing assistant. So I worked on the business side. And that very quickly became a 15-year career in magazine publishing. So I was at Vogue and uh, GQ. And towards the end of my time, I was the senior director of... Um, of marketing, integrated marketing at Glamour Magazine. So literally all the glamour, all the glitz, yeah. all of the, the sexiness, all the traveling. Um, at that time, just to put it in perspective, the Devil Wears Prada came out while I was working at Vogue. <laughs> so I was literally living, like Sex in the City and the Devil Wears Prada was my life. You know, yeah, I you, was were in, you were in the middle of it all. You were literally- Right, right, right. Yeah. It wasn't like I was watching it from the sidelines. And it was sexy and fabulous and horrible and terrible and really intense. And, um, you know, and there was the, all that part to it. So that whole thing happened. Meanwhile, the whole time we're talking about this, I've got this chronic illness that I'm just kind of managing myself yeah. around. Um, let me see, I got married and then I got divorced all yeah. before I was 35. Um, and then I changed careers, my first career shift. I thought, okay, this is sexy and cool, but it also felt like I was eating caviar on the Titanic. Wow. Like everything was fabulous in my you, office. Yeah. Was... Can you expand on that? That's, I, I love that image though. So I'm working at Glamour Magazine. My office is at One World Trade, the brand new building downtown. Yep. It's all the glitz, all the glamour. Have I ever met Anna Wintour? Of course, a million times. The clothes and the restaurants and the travel. But it was a magazine. Yeah. And it was very clear to me as the director of integrated marketing that there wasn't all that much integration. Now, for anyone listening, I love Condé Nast. They've done great things since then. But I was feeling a little like, uh-oh, I'm about to get... Um, 35 years old and I'm about to be out of job and I yeah. only know how to do one thing. Yeah. I've been doing this since the day I graduated. I'm fantastic at marketing for magazines. What so, what, so what do I do? So that was sort of the first time I wish I'd had myself as the coach that I am now because I was like, I'm too old, you know, 35, I'm too old, imposter syndrome, I can't do anything else. What am I going to do? Um, you spent 15 years on this. You don't know anything else. Like it's been so deeply programmed and integrated at that point. And I'm sure much like you felt at Cisco, like there was a lot of pedigree to working at Vogue or GQ or Glamour at Condé Nast. I mean, that has lost some of its street cred these days, but at that time that was it. You yeah. know, that was the, the coolest, sexiest thing you could be doing. And that was the good news because that gave me a leeway to get a job at eBay where I then became a business development person. Yeah. No idea what I was doing. <laughs> but you were able to get it. But I got it. And I stayed for four years. And while I was there, I had my entire colon removed in an emergency surgery. 
Um, so I was at work on a Tuesday. I was at work on a Monday and Tuesday morning. I was having my entire major organ removed. Wow. Um, I went on to have four more surgeries. So I had five surgeries over two and a half years between each surgery. I'd go back to work. I'd get right back into it. And that was really the change for me. That was the pinnacle. I should also say this. I also quit drinking when I was 35. So I made a career shift. A lifestyle shift. A lifestyle shift. And then my colon got removed. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why is this happening to me now? But that's what happened. And while I was in it, I was living. I was literally just surviving. I was trying to get through each surgery, come back. My first surgery was done incorrectly, unfortunately. So it had to be redone. So it was a lot of stress, a lot of trauma, a lot of drama. And, and then the when whole I- time, The whole time you're balancing the career as you're doing absolutely. all of this. Absolutely. You're trying to stay alive. Yeah, and I got I got to have health insurance. I'm now a single woman with a chronic autoimmune disease. I'm I'm working. I need yeah. health insurance. Yeah. Um, and the medical bills astronomical. So, I I finished all my surgeries and I took a look around at my life and I was like, I'm pretty sure I didn't live for this. Yeah. Was that kind of the the awakening, the aha moment? I'd felt it when I was leaving Condé Nast and leaving print. But I wasn't ready yet. When I was 35, I wasn't ready yet. I was just getting my legs as a newly divorced woman who at that point had just recently stopped drinking. And my drinking story isn't anything all that dramatic. It was just like the rest of everyone else's lives were progressing and I was kind of drinking yeah, <laughs> and, and working yeah, and sad about the fact that I was divorced. And, um, you know, there's a lot more to it, but I think it took me some time after that to to really have the courage to live, right? And a lot of people talk about like, I wanted to thrive, not just survive. And that was what was true for me. Yeah. And I should have become a coach then, but I was afraid. So instead I went and tried to find me. And what I mean when I say that is exactly what I said at the beginning. On paper, I had it all. Yeah. But I felt uninspired. I felt like I was just trudging along. And there were a lot of life coaches out there that were going to help me find purpose in life. And I was like, I just lived. I'm good. I have a lot of purpose yeah. in my life. And I know what I'm supposed to be doing is helping other people. I'm uniquely suited to t- obviously overshare and help other people. But also, I don't want to put all my stuff in storage and go live that van life. I need health insurance. I need an income. I need yeah. to support myself. And so there was like career coaches and there were life coaches. And I was like, where do they come together? And where do we look at somebody holistically? I, lo- I and- love that you're talking about this, right? Because like I look back and I'm like, I wish that you were around when I quit my corporate job because that would have been phenomenal for me, right? Like it's No, because then you wouldn't have become you. This is a valid point. <laughs> but that being said, I probably would have been a lot happy. I would have been very happy. I would have yeah. been content. I would have lived that, built that life, right? I think there's a lot of people that are looking for that. And I don't think everybody is supposed to become an entrepreneur like I did as well, right? Right. So. That's very true. That's very true. So that's what I did. It took me a little bit of bumps and starts. I took another job. I switched industries again. I went into um, ad tech and was the director of sales and had great success there, but it really wasn't my calling. And so I finally, during COVID, put it all down, met Xander, started (laughs) coaching. The rest is history. Let's said, let's go. And the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. I think think that's, there's so many lessons that I can dig into from your story. But the one thing that's kind of the through line that I noticed, like you mentioned, it sounds like it literally started at age 16. 
And exactly. you know, the more that I get to know you and the more that we hang out and the more that we coach together, like this is the theme of Rebecca is like, you are a victor in your life. You are that warrior, like you mentioned. Like for, for, it sounds like for you, you're not exactly sure where it came from to just step into that victor mentality and out of that victim mentality. How do you, I, I'm sure you work with a lot of people and you have to help pull them out of that victor, victim mentality. Like, how do you do that? How do you get into that mode? So it's such a great question. And, and you're right. I don't know exactly where it started. And it's sort of like we all have these talents within us. And that part of being a coach for me is like, well, I have this weird thing where I'm, I just don't feel badly for myself all that often. Yeah. How can I help other people feel that way too? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not really being well served being the director of sales. <laughs> right. It's like, how that's can not, I yeah. help other people feel this way and do the things right. that I've been able to do? Yeah. So one, honestly, Xander, one of the ways that I do it is by just being me and continuing yeah. to show up. Because here's the story, guys. I still have a chronic autoimmune disease. I still have to pay for health insurance. I still have medical bills. I still have the, all the same. It's not like any of that stuff went away, right? So yeah. it's how do I continue showing up? And, and part of it is we all have one big, beautiful life. Yeah. You know, and when you're falling asleep at night, if you're not thinking I've shown up the best that I could today, the only person responsible for that is you. So I can spend a lot of time blaming my chronic illness and there's no known cause and there's no known cure. And if my marriage had worked out and if the job hadn't changed, but it's still my it life. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't make anything better. So, you know, that blaming that victimhood it might feel a little bit better because you're getting some of it off your chest, but you're just going to stay stuck. That's exactly right. And that concept of powerlessness, as soon as you shift from why me to why not me, mm. the world is full of opportunities. But if you want to stay in the why is this happening to me, there's going to be a million reasons to keep you powerless. But it just takes one to go like, you know what? This is my life. Yeah, I love that. And I think you, there's something that you've, you've mentioned before and I, I saw on your website as well. Uh, you mentioned just being unapologetically optimistic, passionate, and expressive, and you, right? And I think maybe, is there, maybe so much of that is just like our fears of what other people think of us or, or that, that impression of what people see you as rather than just being truly yourself, it sounds like. So here's when everything changed for me. I lived this life of sort of shrouded secrecy. Like I was chronically ill yeah. with a disease that had me going to the bathroom 15 or 20 times a day while being class president, while getting I was, was going to say, and you found this out as a teenage girl, probably not the best time to have to go through something like Basically that. Basically starting puberty. Yeah. And so... There were many years in which I had my illness and then I had me. Yeah. And there was this huge dance between them. Wow. And when I started just integrating my life together, and part of that, I'm going to be honest, Sandra, is getting sober and just being brutally honest because it's in our lot, you know, our secrets keep us sick kind of thing that I was like, wait, I'm gaining more friends and deeper connections with people. The more honest and vulnerable I am. And that's feeling more and more of a disconnect professionally. So that's a big thing that I talk about with my clients too, is that we're whole people and the way we show up in our lives shouldn't be drastically different between work and home, yeah. being a parent and being a friend. Like we are one person and the more we can integrate that and stay in line with who we really are, the less stress we feel in our lives and the less opportunity to feel powerless and feel like a victim. I, I you know, it's funny. We, uh, 
we just had Zach on the show and, and Zach, you know, a career coach for engineers. And one of the things that he mentions is like, you know, so it's very similar. He's like, so much of our time is spent with these like, like little secrets we keep from ourselves. And yep. it's this dissonance between the secret that we're keeping over here and the life that we're living over here. And it's like stretching a rubber band. And it's like the rubber band might not be that tense, but if you stretch a rubber band and you try and hold it apart for years, it's a workout. It's a workout. Yeah. Like eventually yeah. you're going to give in and you're going to cave. And, and it sounds like that's a big part of it is like, stop trying to keep these things separate and just allow it to just be you. And that's why I'm a coach, right? Yeah. Because my natural tendency is to share and be honest and try and help other people. So what I was doing on the weekends while I was the director of sales was talking to other chronic illness patients, was talking mm. to other people that were trying to get and stay sober, was talking to people, women who were divorced in, in their early life, you know? And I was like, but that, okay, put that all away. Now I got to go to work. Now go back, now go back to work. Yeah. And when it finally dawned on me, you're not going to have to be bankrupt if you monetize your passion in an authentic, real way. I'm not trying to like fleece yeah. people for money. Yeah. That everybody wins. It's actually a win-win. It's in trying to bottle who I really am down and fit into this other, there's people that are meant to be directors of sale that lights them up. Yeah. It just isn't me. Yeah. When I love one of the things that you're talking about here is the monetization of something that you do that you're passionate about and also of serving others. Right. Yep. Um, and I think that's a big, uh, maybe mental block or belief for a lot of people yes. is that, you know, a lot of people think I, I hear this all the time, specifically in the coaching space is like, Oh, I love it so much. I do it for free. And I'm like, well, that's the problem. That's why you would never be able to do it because you only get to do it, like you mentioned, on the weekends and it's almost this separate life. Yep. Right? So so talk to me about like how you're able to reconcile that and be, you know, like, no, not only do I need to be passionate about this, but I also need to monetize this. I need to make money for this. The dissonance became one that I couldn't handle anymore. I yeah. just couldn't be passionate about one thing and do something else all day long Yeah. because I was actually burning myself out. It yeah. is not easy to be a free coach yeah. and a chronic illness advisor and, yeah. a, you know, help people and a with sobriety coach and a divorce coach and all and a divorce things, coach yeah. and, you know, my own family stuff and my own health stuff. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And so it got to the point where I started to notice, yeah, I was, I was making good money. I'm not, you know, I wasn't crazy rich, but I was making good money. I had a very nice life in Manhattan, which is quite an expensive way to live. And I noticed that all my money was being spent basically de-stressing. Wow. Therapy. Just trying to, just trying to cope Mas and handle. Massage, therapy, manicures and pedicure, like going on vacations, getting out of the city, have, you know, car rides and rental cars to leave New York. Wow. And it was like, I actually probably could make significantly less money if I were actually happy. And yeah. then add on to that, I have an illness with no known cause and no known cure. And I want to be very clear about that. There's nothing I can do to make it better. But we all know that stress makes things worse. Yeah. So possibly my medical bills will be reduced and my cost of living will be reduced. And something I learned from you, Xander, which is critically important, is I didn't go into coaching trying to get rich. But because I love it so much, I work extra. I work all the time because it doesn't, it, guys, it really, like some of it does. Like accounting is a nightmare. Yeah. Sometimes the sales park kills me a little, but I love what I'm doing. And even on those days where I'm like, oh, this is a lot of work. I'm like, I get to help people yeah. for a living. 
it's it's no longer separate anymore. It is now it is now confined into one one area. I love that. And and I think the truth is, if I keep doing good work, that I am going to end up making around the kind of money I was making selling my soul all day long every day. Yeah. In a casual, not at all <laughs> dramatic way of describing it. I so I it. think the fear of money though, I think it's very real. Yeah. And one of the things I talk to my own clients a lot about is they'll talk to me about how much money they want to make. And I'll say, do you have a five-year budget? And they're like, no, I just, I need to make the money. And I'm like, what's the money for? Yeah. We have this idea of how much money we need to amass in order. And it, you know, you know better than anybody. That's about ego. That's about fear. That's about external validation. And I think we can all say, those of us that have stepped away from the, the traditional definition of financial abundance, have more money. I love that. But you have to be brave. Yeah. Let's, let's actually talk about that. You know, with your, with your clients, you know, obviously you've been able to find that, that passion and reconcile these two different lives. Uh, when you're creating that dream career and dream, dream life with your clients, like what are some of the, the major steps that you have to focus on to help them get there? So the first thing I really focus on is awareness, because I think one of the biggest problems, especially for corporate professionals, especially the higher up they are, the more into the C-suite they are, we are doing. We've got to-do lists and we've got our things and we've got all our action items. And we're very good. If someone tells me what to do, I go and get it done. That's what I do. I got to hit my numbers. I got to get to these meetings, da, 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 da. I always say, if you're not careful, your to-do list becomes your five-year plan because mm. you're not pausing. So what I do first and foremost is stop for a second. What do you really care about? How much of your actions are aligned with your actual values and how much of it is just sort of inherited? This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is all of that. What do you care about? What are your capabilities? What are your strengths? What lights you personally up? Yeah. Then let's take take some action. But now we're taking an aware action where we actually are basing this on who you are as a person. And that's, I think, one of the biggest differences that you can, you can make is, is the pause before the action. I had a, I had a mentor once tell me, he's like, you know, so many people just put their head down and just start swimming. And then, you know, they occasionally pick their head up and three years later, they're like, holy crap, I've been swimming in the entire wrong direction for the last three years. Yeah. Right. And it's like, for many of us, that's 20 years. Yeah. I was going to say it could be a lot longer. It could be 10. It could be 20. It could be, you know, this is, this is a lot of what, you know, a lot of people get to, you know, their forties, their fifties, and then they have this quote unquote midlife crisis of like, holy crap, it's been 30 years now. And I'm just realizing that I've been swimming the wrong direction. And I, and I just have been swimming so hard. It's like, have you ever heard the analogy of uh, running on a treadmill on a train? No. (laughs) So I think that was me for a long time. I was running so hard, sweating, sweating, sweating. And then it would be like someone came by and turned off the treadmill and the train is like, I thought I was making the train go by and everything was flying by me. It it was the train was doing it on its own. If I stopped for a second. Wow. I realized how much energy I was expending towards something that wasn't actually even real. Wasn't doing anything. Yeah. So. I think that's a big thing with my clients and a lot of them, Xander, and I'm sure you can relate to this from back before you got into this. A lot of them say, oh, I don't even know what I'm passionate about. A hundred percent. I think, I think that's one of the biggest problems with people is they just don't take the time to actually get clear on what really matters to them. You know, we're. And don't you that. find it's usually something very simple? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we're kind of fed this lie that it's like, you know, it's going to take you a lifetime, discover your life's purpose and your, your, your mission and things like that. It's like, nah. 
not really. <laughs> I think it's always there if you're willing to pay attention. But I do also think yeah. things happen for a reason. So one yeah. of the expressions I use a lot is life gets lifey, right? Yeah. So I may have always have been meant to be somebody who shares my experience in a way that gives other people strength and hope. But I needed the surgeries to realize my own power. Well, you also needed to go through the life experience to be able to then share it with others and have that impact. And, and that could have been starting at 16. Yeah. But it wasn't until I had something that was like, I almost died five times, you know, that I felt like I had the street cred. Because we all have imposter syndrome to some yeah, extent. Of course. But now it makes sense. So this thing that was like, how could this happen to me? Why did I have to have my colon removed? And it was done incorrectly. And I have to have it redone. And then it was like, oh, so that I can do this. I I want to I wanna dig into something that you just said there, because obviously you work with a lot of high-performing executives, high-performing people. You're a high-performing person. I like to consider myself a high-performing person, but you mentioned, you, some, you, you mentioned that uh, you know we all have imposter syndrome. And I think this was actually one of the things that I learned when I did work at Cisco, because you know, I was a 25, 26 year old kid and I was surrounding myself with C-suite level executives at Disney yeah. and Facebook. And I would notice that every single one of them had the same insecurities that I had at a kid and kid is mid twenties trying to work with them. They had their own insecurities around all of it. So I'd, I'd love for you to talk about this imposter syndrome, because I think it's something that's not discussed enough especially at, at the higher levels, because we assume because that's when you won't talk about it because that's when it's not you okay to be happen. an imposter. Yeah. You're the VP. Yeah. So here's the thing that I always say about imposter syndrome. Here's the spoiler alert. You already said it. Everybody has imposter syndrome. Yeah. Your boss has imposter syndrome. Your boss's boss has imposter syndrome. And the key, the solution is so, so simple and so hard and it's being honest. Yeah. So when I switched industry, completely did an industry shift for the third time and I went into ad tech. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from magazine publishing and now I'm not in marketing anymore. I'm not even in biz dev. I'm the director of sales. So I'm directing a team of salespeople in an industry I know nothing about with a product that I know nothing about. Yeah. And here's what happened. They wanted me for a reason. They sought me out on LinkedIn. So when I went into interview, I said to them, I don't know anything about ad tech, but I'm really hardworking and I'm pretty darn smart, but I'm not going to come in here and pretend because I, if I get the job, I don't want to, I don't want to let you down. Yeah. And they, that was like catnip for them. They were like, we want you yesterday, you know, because they wanted that particular employer wanted somebody with fresh ideas and experience. They also yeah. really wanted the fact that I had worked at Condé Nast, so everything works out yeah. for a reason. Well, and they probably really appreciated your honesty and realism, which so many of us just don't give anymore. And hello, it was a sales position, and that was like the ultimate way to sell myself, and they yeah. saw that. Yeah. So I think that the key for imposter syndrome, it's so beautiful, and you've been through this, I'm sure, many times. When someone stands up on a stage or they go to present something and they go, I'm really nervous right now. And the whole room is like, oh. Yeah. You know, no one's like, loser. You know, we, we all want to just engage with real people. Yeah. So again, it's the same thing. The more we show up holistically in our lives and we're real people and we don't put on our like, I'm in a professional situation, so I have to act like a jerk. The less imposter syndrome has to occur because everyone's just showing up exactly how they are. Wow. I love that. It's literally, you're, you're reminding me, I was just on 
uh, I just did a, a Bloomberg TV segment, an Apple TV segment with David Meltzer. So for those of mm-hmm. you guys who don't know David, uh, he built a hundred million dollar business by the time he was 32. And, you know, he's like, yeah, one of the, one of the most successful, uh, uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial coaches out there, Forbes top 10 speaker in the world. And I was interviewing with him. Which is no big deal for you, Xander, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but, but I was interviewing with him and, and one of the things that he brought up was imposter syndrome. And I was talking about how I get it every single day. And I was like, I was like, you know, I don't know if people like you get it, David, but like I get it every single day. And and David Meltzer is sitting there on the other side of the table from me and goes, man, I'm sitting here staring across at you, this 33 year old kid who seemingly has all his shit together. And I'm like, who am I to talk to this guy? And I'm like, oh my, that was the aha for me that like somebody at his level, we've all got it with his level of success, his level of of uh, he's such a deep and spiritual guy who's done all the deep work yeah. and he's been so successful in business and so successful in his career and served so many millions of people. And he's sitting there going, wow, this guy. Right? You I'm got like, it. What? Right. And so, yeah, we also literally think this is something that's unique about imposter syndrome that's going on right now in the corporate world. The youths know stuff. I don't know. Period. Yeah in terms of technology, in terms of social, in terms of what's going on on the street. And so there is a feeling, especially among executives that aren't, you know, at startups and 25 and already a CEO, where they do feel like they don't know. Yeah. And if you can harness that correctly, it becomes a beautiful partnership. Mm. How because so? the CEO has soft skill or has hard skills that you just can't have yet. They've been on to business trips. They've been to board meetings. They've spoken in front of thousands of people. They have true, true wisdom. Time on like time takes time. Yeah. I don't care how smart you are. When you're 25, you're not going to be the best CEO. Maybe you could be the best CFO. Maybe there's certain, but you don't understand how to organize and manage people because you haven't been around them enough. Yeah. So that's, that's the partnership. And then the younger person's like, Yo, here's your phone. Let me show you a thing or two about Instagram. Or, you know, I noticed when you're on Zoom that you don't look at the camera, like stuff that they just don't know. So it's a it's an information sharing and gathering, which is really, really beneficial. And it's never been like that before. It used to be the more senior you were, the more you knew, period. Yeah. Not necessarily. And we get to learn from each other differently than ever. I love it. So uh, we can probably keep going for hours around this because this is a topic that I'm really passionate about. Um, but I do want to be be conscious of time. Rebecca, one question that I do want to make sure to ask you before I let you go is going back. I know you've had some very interesting experiences, but going back, what's one thing that you maybe wish you learned while you were in college? Ooh, Xander. Um, the power of humility. I wish I'd learned that it was okay not to know everything and not to get straight A's and to ask for help and to admit that you didn't feel well and that while your other friends were going to Mardi Gras, you were getting infusions at the hospital. You know, the power of humility, I think, would have changed so much for me. Oh, man, I think that's killer. I think that's a big one for absolutely everybody. Rebecca, where can everybody learn more about you? Where can they learn more about your coaching? If, if someone's a high performer in the career, uh, looking for the career of their dreams, how can they connect with you? So really easy. First of all, there's a website. It's my name. It's Rebecca Babcock coaching.com or 
RBC on Instagram, rbc.coaching. Either one of those are great. And look, if you're not a high-performing professional, but the rest of the stuff sounds interesting, or maybe you have ulcerative colitis, hit me up. I Like I said, I love to chat with people. So however I can help. I love it. Rebecca, you're always of service to everybody. So everybody out there listening, make sure to reach out to Rebecca. She is one of the best in the industry. She will change your life. She inspires mm-hmm. me every single day. So I can't, I can't thank you enough for being on this show, Rebecca, and everything that you do for the people around you. Uh, so thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for all of our shit you don't learn in college fans out there, if you've gotten any value from this podcast, don't forget to go to www.sidlickbook to grab your copy of Shit You Don't Learn in College, the book, available now. Rebecca, thanks so much. Thank you, Xander, for everything. Of course. All right. That's all we have for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shit You Don't Learn in College. And if you did, please share this episode on your social media and tag at Xander Fryer. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a five-star rating so you don't miss any other great episodes. We can only spread our message when you share this knowledge with the others that need it. So we really appreciate the support. Thanks a ton.